morning. <coughs> I'm very honored uh, to be here. And I'm also very lucky by Mr. Morris's terms because I was born in New York City, only a few blocks from here. Uh, when I was your age, I gather the average age here is about 18. And uh, I was lucky in this sense that I already knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a writer, and I was already writing, in fact. I wasn't writing very well. I wrote a whole <coughs> series of very bad short stories. I wrote about the uh, reflections of an, about an 88-year-old man on his deathbed. And uh, I wrote about a retarded boy who was lured out onto the thin ice by a snowy owl and went to his doom. Um, and other things I knew a lot about when I was 18 years old. Uh, but one of those stories was taken by the Atlantic Monthly and won a prize, and on the basis of that I got an agent and immediately embarked on the great American novel. <coughs> and I turned it in after about 100 pages. I figured it was, the country should see this as soon as possible. This is a very important work. And I just so sort of hung around the post office like the village idiot for the next two weeks waiting for the applause and the Hollywood calls and stuff to roll in. And I had a letter from my agent, and this is the letter. I promise you, this is the letter in its entirety. Dear Peter, James Fenimore Cooper wrote this 150 years ago, only he wrote it better. Yours, Bernice. She later sent me, I went to live in, in Paris, and I, uh, a story of mine won a little prize in a, in a, in a British short story contest. And uh, I sent her her commission, which was about $18 on that prize, <laughs> thinking it was courteous. She'd spent so much money on me on stamps and stuff with no reward. And she wrote back, Dear Peter, I'm awfully glad you were able to get rid of this story in Europe, because I do not think we would have had much luck with it here. Yours, Bernice. So I persevered all the same. As Mr. Hazenga said, it isn't always easy. And uh, I found, however, I did bring out a first novel and, uh, but the, but, and then a second. And they were quite well received, but I wasn't making a living. And that's when I became a commercial fisherman. And uh, I worked as a commercial fisherman for three years. And then I had a charter boat, took people deep sea fishing out of Montauk, Long Island. And finally, I needed something to eke that out. I was married and I had kids and stuff. And I fell back on childhood, a childhood love of animals, and snakes and birds especially. And uh, I knew quite a lot about those. And I went to the New Yorker magazine, and I said, why don't you send me around the world to investigate the world's last wild places? Everybody's writing about Europe and so forth, but these wild places are going under. And to my astonishment, they sent me. I rushed to the boat before they could change their mind. And I went to South America first, the cloud forest and all, and Alaska and New Guinea. That was the expedition Michael Rockefeller was with us, some of you may recall, who was killed. And uh, Australia, we did a, a, a movie on the great white sharks called Blue Water White Death. I was one of the, the divers on that uh, expedition. We were the ones who kind of popularized the white shark. We weren't the ones who made the money. That was Jaws. <clears throat> Jaws came along within about six months and really cleaned up on our concept. That's the risk. And at the same period, this was, I was also writing fiction. I wrote this novel called A Play in the Fields of the Lord in 1965. It was taken for the movies that year, and I can announce that just this year it's been made. It's coming out in November uh, with Kathy Bates and Tom Berenger. It should be a pretty good movie. I don't know. 
But in the same period, I got very interested in social justice. I began to see that the other side of the environment and the other side of wilderness was also people. They had a, a place too. And I was very struck by what Albert Camus said when he won the Nobel Prize. He said, it's the obligation of writers of the 20th century to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. I think that's extremely important. In 1969, I did a book on Cesar Chavez and the Grape Strike in California. And since then, I've done a couple of books on American Indian problems and another one on the commercial fishermen I used to work with who were being pushed right off the landscape uh, where I live. And I feel more and more strongly that social justice and environment are really related problems that we really cannot separate them. Uh, and my nonfiction and fiction now seem to have come together. They both deal with both of these things mostly. Uh, I feel that there are inequities. In a great country we have, there are enormous inequities. And we're going to have a lot of crime. I think we've hardly seen the beginning of it, unless we turn things around a little bit in favor of those people who are disadvantaged. I think it's disturbing to see how many black kids, for example, were serving in the Gulf. Uh, there's an enormous imbalance there. And I think we must develop, along with all these other wonderful virtues that have been extolled here by all the speakers, and, uh, you know, working hard and competitiveness and aggressiveness and so forth, we have to have some idealism as well. I uh, was very pleased to talk to one of you last night, one of the students, who wants to be a doctor like many of you, but he also wants to dedicate his work to the inner cities. I think that's just really great. I've had some great conversations with all of you, but that was the one that kind of pleased me the most, that somebody at your age already knows where he wants to go. It's not where the money is, but it's where it's most needed. And as Mr. De Laurenta said, that's the other side of it, that compassion and caring for other people. I wish, frankly, that more CEOs had that attitude. I think they feel more responsible than they tend to, to the shareholders, and that's their job, but also there is that community and out there that <laughs> needs taken care of uh, very well. And our country needs taken care of. I mean, imagine how exhilarating it would be if there was an industries now cleaning up rivers, cleaning up the land, and cleaning up air. How great it would be to go out to the Hudson River here and be able to dive in again and to be able to eat the fish that you caught out of it. And how great that would be for our children. One of the things that shocks American Indian people about our behavior is how crippled and uh, corrupted a land we are leaving for our children and grandchildren. They can't believe that we're willing to do this simply for the sake of so-called progress. Uh, last night, you were encouraged to have the courage of your beliefs. And I think sometimes uh, we have to have beliefs that are not very popular. And I feel obliged this morning to express mine. I'm down in the program as a radical intellectual. I don't think of myself as an intellectual and, and not usually as a radical either. Uh, and maybe when I get through here, they won't give me my golden plate. <laughs> I, I won't be here tomorrow night, I'm sorry to say, anyway, to receive it, because I have to give another environmental talk. But last August, when the news came in, I was very upset by the possibility that some of the people your age and a little bit older might lose their lives in the Gulf War if that came about. We didn't know it was going to come about then. Uh, it really, it got me down. That war did not seem necessary. 
It did not seem that we just seemed to be in a long series of wars and police actions against very small countries, and here we are, the greatest superpower on earth. And while I applaud the job those kids did in the military, and the whole military did a wonderful job from General Schwarzkopf and Powell down, I'm afraid I don't share the general national euphoria about this so-called uh, great victory. I think history will decide whether a war in which a few hundred die on one side and hundreds of thousands on the other, is that a great victory or a great massacre? And I wonder what President Lincoln would have thought of all these uh, police state actions that we seem to engage in. I feel that um, strongly this is a great country. You know, this is the country that gave the world the Marshall Plan, which is probably the most generous international act in the history of mankind. An extraordinary gesture toward the world to heal the world after World War II. And uh, I feel that I'm a very patriotic citizen and I'm very proud of this country. But I do not feel that being a good citizen is being a sheep and lining up simply that's the, because that's the way that everybody is going. And I'm angry with our country when it betrays our standards. Uh, I can remember, I'm getting the, the gong here in any second. Excuse me if I go a little long, I will not be speaking tomorrow night, so I'll, I'll take an extra minute and maybe no questions. I just want to finish this point. Um, I can remember in the 60s when we were demonstrating for civil rights, for Martin Luther King, against Vietnam and so forth. It's true the cops, as Mr. Mara said, sometimes got out of hand, no question about it. Cops will do that. But by and large, it was amazing. Here we were going down these avenues and marchings, and there were a lot of right-wing people there who really wanted to tear our heads off. And uh, the cops were holding them back. Now, the cops wanted to tear our heads off, too but they weren't doing it, and they were holding back people who wanted to do it. Now, I've traveled very widely in the world, and I've seen cops in other countries, and I can tell you we are blessed here. We do have a great country. We do have those protections. I had lawsuits for my Indian books totaling $49 million brought by the ex-governor of South Dakota and by an FBI agent alleging libel. Those suits this October were thrown, thrown out and the book was reissued. And these were by conservative courts. Um, and I'm still working on that case. Well, again, this wouldn't happen in every country. I'm in the minority. I am the so-called radical intellectual here. Uh, we have those protections. And I want to conclude on one thing. I want to mention that idealism again, because that's important. That's the other side of success and aggressiveness. This is a very easy country to be brave in because of these protections. It is a great country. But flag-waving is not a symptom of a patriot. It really is not. And it doesn't matter how your political, what your political views are. Whatever you feel, because it's easy to be brave here, be brave. That's what I would like to say to you. Be brave. Thank you very much.